welcome to the Development Podcast, coming to you from the World Bank Group in the United States and around the world. I'm Raka Banerjee, alongside Paul Blake. Today, the race to vaccinate the world against COVID-19. We're examining why many low-income countries are struggling to vaccinate their populations and what's being done to help. The situation that we see right now uh, is absolutely unacceptable because a large part of the world remains unvaccinated and this is a danger for all of us. And from Addis Ababa, the steps being taken to accelerate vaccination rates across the African continent. What we want are vaccines now. We don't want vaccines in 2022, 2023. And those vaccines that could be made available now have already been bought up. It means that even though we have the money, we can't be able to buy because there's nothing to buy. All that and more over the next few minutes. But first, let's take a look at some data. So you've been digging into the data and when it comes to COVID-19 vaccination rates around the world, what are you finding? So I was looking at data that's available from the Our World and Data website, which is updated daily based on the latest official statistics from governments and health ministries around the world. And what has become painfully clear is that the main story when it comes to vaccines is inequality. And, and what are some of those sort of major discrepancies? So, you know, worldwide, almost 4 billion vaccine doses have been administered globally, and 27.6% of the world's population has received at least one dose of, of a vaccine at this point. So that sounds pretty good. But then if you break it down by country income groups, only 1.1% of people living in low-income countries have received even one dose of a vaccine. I mean, 1.1% is a... It's a very low number. Can you break it down any further? So that's in terms of percentage of population. But then if you look at the breakdown when it comes to the percentage of doses to date, and this is as of July 28th, 84% of all doses that have been administered so far have all gone to people in high and upper middle income countries. And in comparison, looking at the percentage of doses that have been administered in low income countries, it's a shockingly low 0.3%. I mean, that's a that's a huge difference. Do do things look any better if you if you start to compare across regions? Honestly, not really. So in terms of doses administered per every 100 people, Europe and North America come in at 84 and 82 doses, respectively. You know, and that's keep in mind that most of the vaccines are two dose regimens, right? So and then right. from there, it drops really starkly. So South America has administered only 59 doses per 100 people, Asia 54. And then across Africa, the rate is fewer than five doses for every 100 people. And, and is it a question of, of problems with, with production, with you know, making the vaccines? Um, or, or is this an issue with, with doses being sort of held in surplus and not being made available to people who need them in, in other locations? And I guess if it's about that second point, like excess doses, where are they and, and, and why aren't they being released? So a big part of the problem is that many wealthy countries actually pre-ordered far more vaccine doses than they even needed to vaccinate their populations. You know, looking at data coming from Duke University, just for example, the U.S. paid for enough vaccines for twice its population, the U.K. paid for enough for four times its population, and Canada for five times its population. So, you know, even though the world will have created 11 billion total doses by the end of this year, 
almost 9.9 billion of those doses have already been promised to higher and upper middle income countries. And so, so what's happening now in, in countries where the vaccine supply exceeds the demand for the, the vaccine? Well, some countries have started to donate some of their excess supply, but it's hard to find data on exactly what's happening. Um, last month, the G7 agreed to donate 1 billion COVID-19 doses to poorer countries. So that's a start. But given that the World Health Organization has stated that vaccinating most of the world's population will take 11 billion doses, you know, a lot of people have felt that this contribution was not nearly substantial enough to make the difference that we need to actually stop the pandemic. And and you mentioned that it was hard to find data around excess doses. Do, do you have any thoughts about like why that is, why it's hard to find data? Is it, is it a matter of the research not being done? Is it a matter of sort of transparency? What What's behind that? Well, you know, the thing is, when it comes to data, it's it's so important to have transparency so that people can hold governments to account. Um, and, and since much of this information is not publicly available, it's really hard to advocate um, for the equitable distribution that is really needed to make sure that people in poorer countries aren't just being left to fend for themselves. All right. So one last question. Is, is vaccine production a factor here? And, and is there any good news on that front in terms of, of getting shots into arms? So many of the major vaccine manufacturers have ramped up production. Um, so for example, Pfizer and BioNTech are planning to produce 3 billion doses by the end of the year. And a third of those are intended to go directly to COVAX or to low and middle income countries. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, all this background and context. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. This is the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group. Now, March 2020 may feel like it was a different era, but it was just about 17 months ago that the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. With developing countries bracing for the virus to arrive on their shores, one region that was of particular concern was Africa. Many countries across the continent have long suffered from fragile health systems that were already stretched by outbreaks in years past. To understand how African countries were pulling together and preparing for the pandemic, we spoke last year to the Africa Centers for Disease Control's Deputy Director, Dr. Ahmed Agwell. The mood, I would say, is one of uncertainty because uh, this thing is new. Uh, what um, images are um, available online and uh, in the media uh, is not very encouraging. And of course, uh, there's uh, quite some anxiety uh, what that will mean if it came into uh, onto the continent. Well, that was March 2020. Let's fast forward to today. Just what has the virus meant for the continent? What about vaccination efforts? And what challenges are on the horizon? To get answers to these questions and more, we had the opportunity to talk once again with Dr. Ahmed Agwell. He joined us down the line from Addis Ababa. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, when we last spoke, which was uh, in early March of 2020, before I think much of the world realized just how serious this pandemic was going to be. We, we asked you how serious the pandemic seemed at the time to you and what those kind of early signs looked like to you and in, in your kind of professional opinion relative to previous 
outbreaks of, of diseases. And let's just real quick before we jump into some questions, take a listen to that clip. This one is looking a lot more serious than the, the earlier ones. If you look at uh, COVID-19, its transmissibility is quite high. It's easy to transmit from person to person. And then the level of illness that it causes, particularly to the older folk, is quite um, much higher than uh, what SARS and MARS has uh, shown us to be able to do. So that was a, a really prescient answer there from, from early March 2020. How has the African continent fared since then? Um, three things that um, I think stand out for us on the continent. And thank you very much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Um, the, the, the three things, one is that um, when knowledge is shared with the public, they tend to respond largely in positive ways. And that is why in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw low numbers in Africa, not just because uh, there was leadership from many levels, the Africa Union, the Africa CDC, the member states, but also because the public listened to evidence and science and they responded. Second is that um, when the chips are really down, um, Africa is on its own. Um, and we've struggled to um, handle things that would have been a lot easier if there was more solidarity globally. Third is that spread of the virus does not really respect modeling. It does not respond to, um, uh, you know, discussions amongst uh, professionals and politicians. It does what it does. And that's how the variants have uh, ripped across the world. We knew variants were coming, but um, we were not entirely prepared, globally speaking, we were not entirely prepared for uh, the large number of variants. And uh, of course, Delta variant um, uh, uh, just waking up and uh, becoming uh, the real problem, uh, uh, really, uh, during the whole pandemic so far. When we spoke last, you had, you had said that one of your main concerns at that time was that across the continent of Africa, health systems, you know, are not the strongest, that they might be overwhelmed. Were, were those fears realized to any extent? Or um, can you give us an update on that? Um, Africa is very diverse. And there are parts of Africa that uh, the systems were not completely overrun, but um, heavily stretched. Um, uh, it, it, it really um, is heavily dependent on how much prevention and uh, community engagement a country does, because uh, that then reflects on the, the overall numbers of cases and then the numbers of those that uh, really need hospitalization. And uh, those that need hospitalization are the ones that uh, would put a huge strain on the health system. And the knock-on uh, uh, knock effects include other areas, you know, malaria, TB, childhood illnesses, will then get affected because uh, the staff uh, are quite stretched. But sitting back and looking at the whole continent as one block, um, we are very um, uh, pleased that we our systems on the continent have not been overrun although we are getting low numbers we are getting slightly more people uh, dying and uh, this is not a situation that we would have liked um, we know why um, 
three main things come out of that. One is that we have few health facilities that can be able to handle um, uh, really serious illnesses. Uh, second is all the equipment and uh, um, consumables needed, particularly oxygen concentrators, um, oxygen machines themselves, um, uh, ICU uh, um, uh, facilities, those are few on the continent. And finally, it is because our health workers are also few. And so they are stretched in between um, um, uh, looking after relatively more uh, individuals who need uh, uh, that care. But our health systems have not been overrun, and it is something that we are trying to keep that way in the next months as we uh, roll out uh, our vaccination on the continent. And and that's the very next point I want to go to. I, I, I'm, you're the expert here, certainly much more than me, but I would assume another factor would be um, the relatively low vaccination rate across African countries and, and across much of the developing world, uh, but, but many African uh, countries have very low Af uh, very low vaccination rates right now. And, and I'm wondering what, what, in your view, is causing those vaccination rates to fall so far behind uh, other countries around the world, and, and particularly um, more developed countries, and, and what needs to be done? There are a few things, uh, factors that are contributing to the very low um, vaccination rates. In fact, as of today, we are at about 1.65% fully vaccinated, which is extremely far um, when you consider our target of 60% of uh, uh, the population on the continent. And so sorry, that's, that's across the whole continent, 1.65% across across the African continent. Correct, fully vaccinated. We're fully vaccinated. And fully vaccinated, yeah. And just right. for, for anyone who's listening in the future, we're recording this uh, on July 28th in, in late July. So data as of July 28th. That's correct. Um, so a few factors are contributing to the low vaccination. Um, one is that... Um, uh, there are few um, entities um, that are actually manufacturing uh, COVID-19 vaccines, and particularly those that have achieved emergency use authorization. Um, there are few that are doing that, um, while at the same time, the whole world wants the vaccines. So um, access is heavily limited um, by uh, the rate of uh, supply of the vaccines. Um, second is that um, uh, the relatively well-to-do countries um, bought up um, the vast majority of the vaccines that are to be made available during this year. Because what we want are vaccines now. We don't want vaccines in 2022, 2023. <laughs> um, and those vaccines that um, could be made available now have already been bought up. And uh, in that way, it means that even though we have the money, we can't be able to buy because there's nothing to buy. And um, right. we are negotiating very hard with the manufacturers to see if we can be able to get um, uh, some of these items earlier. So this is second. Third is vaccine nationalism. Even those that um, we had agreements with uh, to supply, um, uh, governments have gone into the very unhelpful uh, policy path of keeping everything that is being manufactured within their borders. And um, this is, um, in our view, um, a very negative path to take because it actually continues to keep the whole world at risk. Uh, because if you don't cover um, equitably, then the variants will um, pop up. And those variants, as um, Delta has shown us, um, uh, does uh, escape. Uh, 
uh, the current vaccines that we have. And that means another we may need booster doses in the future. And then finally is um, the, um, the whole area of vaccine hesitancy. Um, this has um, contributed to some parts of, of Africa, not, not, not the most, but some parts of Africa. Uh, although they have the vaccines, the uptake has been a bit low and slow. Uh, and we are working with our communications um, uh, colleagues to ensure that we are doing good community engagement uh, so that that hesitancy can drop and um, uptake can be able to increase. Do you worry about African countries being left further behind, you know, going forward? And what do you see as some of the consequences of that? Um, uh, yes, we, we are very concerned that um, the slow uh, pace um, may leave Africa behind. And uh, the consequences of that, we're already seeing them. Um, when we when uh, we are told that you can't um, uh, go to certain uh, uh, public uh, places in certain countries unless you show uh, a vaccine um, uh, evidence that you've been vaccinated, mm -hmm. and yet we don't have the vaccines to be able to vaccinate. So this this is already an immediate consequence. It means uh, I will not be able to take uh, um, a holiday, for example, in certain parts of the world because um, it will be uh, um, uh, difficult. Uh, to be able to move around without vaccination. Um, apart from that is the, the risk and the very, very high risk that if we do not vaccinate enough and bring the pandemic under control, the new variants will, will pop up. And finally is the risk of our health systems getting overwhelmed if we allow for the numbers to increase. And this is something that really, really keeps us awake at Africa CDC. Um, are trying to support our countries to keep the numbers low. If the numbers go high, we know that our health systems will be in real trouble. And in that situation, um, uh, we will end up with a very, very messy uh, situation, which we are working very hard to avoid. Right, Dr. Ahmed Agwell, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Amid the confusion and devastation of the pandemic, one thing is clear, vaccines are our most effective tool to stop the outbreak, save lives, and return to normalcy. And while the Herculean work of scientists to develop safe and effective vaccines so quickly was a massive success, the distribution of vaccines, especially to the developing world, has been rocky and uneven. Why is this the case, and what is being done to boost vaccination rates among the poorest and most vulnerable? We spoke to Mamta Murthy, the World Bank's Vice President for Human Development, who joins us down the line from her home in the Washington, D.C. area. So today, you know, about a year and a half into the pandemic, wealthy countries have the vast majority of the world's supply of COVID-19 vaccines. And in contrast, low-income countries are struggling to even obtain doses for their most at-risk at citizens. How can we close this divide in vaccine rollout between rich and poor countries? So thanks, Raka. That's a great question. The situation that we see right now uh, is absolutely unacceptable because uh, a large part of the world remains unvaccinated, and this is a danger for all of us. I can see at least four things that need to happen. First of all, we need to increase the supply of vaccines in the short term. There simply aren't enough vaccines for everyone. The second thing is that the vaccines that do exist have been pre-purchased and pre-committed to countries that have more than enough 
to vaccinate their populations. So we need to release these doses from surplus countries and give them to countries that don't have enough doses. The third thing that needs to happen is that countries need to gear up and be ready to vaccinate people. And there's a bit of chicken and egg here. The countries will be ready if they know they're going to receive vaccines. And finally, the fourth thing is we need greater transparency around how many doses uh, can be manufactured, who are these committed to, what are the surplus, where are the surplus doses, so that we can have a reallocation uh, towards countries that need, need those doses. And Mamta, what is the World Bank doing to, to help on all those fronts? So we're actually doing quite a lot. Um, first of all, on the manufacturing side, uh, IFC is supporting manufacturing of vaccines, medical equipment, and PPE. Uh, in fact, the largest investment in the history of IFC has been in Aspen Pharmaceuticals in South Africa, which has just started rolling out Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines. Mm -hmm. The second thing we're doing is we're helping countries with financing and technical assistance so that they can buy and administer vaccines to their populations. We've already committed uh, over $4.5 billion in over 50 countries to assist with the purchase and deployment. To give you some examples, um, there are already 50 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines that have been contracted using World Bank financing. Um, World Bank financing will also allow uh, countries in Africa to pay for 400 million doses that the African Union has, has arranged. Another thing that we're doing, uh, the third thing we're doing, is we're helping countries with, with uh, readiness, getting ready to administer and, and deploy vaccines. And the fourth and final thing we're doing is, along with many others, we're advocating for the release of surplus doses in fact, our president, um, President Malpass, along with the heads of the IMF, WTO, and WHO, uh, are jointly leading a task force, uh, a COVID-19 war room, if you like, <laughs> to accelerate the delivery of vaccines and drugs and therapeutics to developing countries. So it sounds like it's a very complicated issue, and there's a lot of factors at play, but two that, that seem to stand out is that the, there's a lack of vaccine supply, and there's a lack of effective distribution. When you really like dive into the data, what's the real issue behind the, the vaccine rollout? What, what, which one is the, the kind of most urgent? Which one is, is causing the most problems? I would say it's both. It's a shortage of supply, without a doubt. Um, there aren't enough vaccines being produced uh, and, and the production is not equitably distributed. The second thing I would say is that countries still need to gear up for um, rolling out these mass vaccination campaigns. Just to, just to underline the point, most developing countries are used to vaccinating their ch child population. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccine is a vaccine that will have to be administered at scale to a very large number of adults. Uh, most countries, most developing countries vaccinate their children against childhood diseases, measles, mumps, rubella, that kind of thing. They're not used to vaccinating their adults. So there's a lot of preparation uh, uh, that is involved in such a large-scale vaccination campaign. And so it's extremely important that, that countries are ready for this. As the World Bank, we've been working with WHO, Gavi, UNICEF, and others on readiness assessments. 
if you like, this is a cheat sheet. It's a it's a list of things that countries have to think about in order to be ready for a large-scale vaccination campaign. And we've worked in over 140 countries to help governments complete these assessments. And these have identified specific gaps that countries need to work on in order to be ready for uh, a large vaccination campaign. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of having a plan for vaccination, most countries are ready and also having security systems. I think 80% of countries are ready. But in terms of training vaccinators, uh, about one third of countries still need to do a lot more work. And um, over half of countries still need to work on um, a stakeholder engagement and communication to address vaccine hesitancy. You know, I think you had mentioned that the the supply for 2021 has a lot of it has already been pre-purchased by wealthier countries. And, you know, it seems like many of these rich countries already have more than enough vaccine to vaccinate their population um, a couple times over even. Uh, and I know that the World Bank has been encouraging countries to donate their excess doses. Can you speak to the consequences if they don't? Well, if uh, we're not able to vaccinate everybody in the world soon, we could be in a situation where the pandemic is prolonged. We're already uh, one and a half years into the pandemic. Uh, this could go on for longer, and it would affect the global economic recovery. We could be in a situation where um, the world is not recovering, so global economic growth could be lower. And it has this has consequences. There are fewer jobs. There is fewer. There's less income in the hands of people, and and this affects the ability to uh, of people to to um, uh, live comfortably and take advantage of of the opportunities that exist. We also run the danger of uh, the emergence of mutations uh, as the as the pandemic is prolonged and the virus circulates amongst newer populations, uh, and and this means that we are all at danger of, uh, of being victim to a new um, mu mutation that actually escapes the, uh, the immunity that is being provided by vaccines. In terms of sort of looking at this more regionally, it seems that African countries are facing some of the greatest challenges in accessing and distributing COVID-19 vaccines. Um, the, their vaccination rates are, are shockingly low in Africa relative to other other parts of the world. What is the World Bank doing to help in Africa specifically? So vaccination rates in Africa are extremely low. Uh, around 1% of the population has been vaccinated compared to 40% of the population in high-income countries. As the World Bank, we are doing a lot. Um, first of all, uh, IFC is supporting manufacture of vaccines in sub-Saharan Africa. The second thing we're doing is supporting uh, African countries with financing to both purchase and deploy vaccines. Uh, I talked about the uh, over $4.5 billion that we have committed in over 50 countries. Well, half of these countries are in Africa. Um, the third thing we're doing is we are uh, uh, our financing we're working with the African Union so that our financing can be used to purchase the, the 400 million doses that the African Union has managed to secure from Johnson & Johnson. And so this means that the World Bank's financing will support the vaccination of 400 million people in sub-Saharan Africa. So um, we're doing a lot, both on vaccination, but also beyond vaccination on strengthening health systems, helping Africa become more resilient to, to climate change and 
and supporting jobs and economic transformation in Africa. I also understand there's a, a COVID-19 task force that, that the bank is teaming up with, with a number of other partners, uh, the IMF, the WTO, the WHO. Uh, can you tell us exactly what that is and, and what it hopes to accomplish? Uh, so the task force, as you mentioned, is joint with three other agencies. And the whole purpose is to track, coordinate, and accelerate the delivery of vaccines and diagnostics and therapeutics to low-income countries. Um, the challenge uh, that everyone is facing is this lack of transparency around e exactly what the supply is, what has been committed, and when it will be delivered. So one of the first things the task force committed to do is to have a website and a country dashboard, which would identify specific gaps, uh, initially in the delivery of vaccines, but over time in the delivery of diagnostics and therapeutics. This would make it uh, easy for everyone to see uh, exactly where the shortages are, where the critical bottlenecks are. And the intention is to bring this uh, to the attention of national authorities and other stakeholders so that the critical bottlenecks can be addressed. The second thing that the task force is doing is, uh, is advocating for very ambitious targets when it comes to vaccination. It's advocating for vaccinating 40% of uh, the population in, developed, uh, in developing countries by the end of this calendar year and 60% by um, the middle of next calendar year. Uh, it's also advocating for uh, donations of vaccines. Uh, it's actually called for a donation of a billion doses uh, this calendar year in order to meet this ambitious target of 40% of, of, of populations uh, of developing countries uh, to be vaccinated. Um, the third thing it's doing is it's, it's arguing for uh, filling any financing gaps that, that are uh, getting in the way of vaccinating people in, in developing countries, including financing gaps in, in the ACT uh, accelerator. And finally, it's, it's advocating for removing any supply constraints and, and export restrictions that may be getting in the way of delivery of vaccines, uh, drugs, and therapeutics. So it's a, it's, it's a joint advocacy come data transparency effort which is intended to really move the dialogue and accelerate the delivery of, of these critical tools to developing countries. So you spoke about um, the transparency, and I, I've been hearing criticism about the, the lack of transparency that's, that's there right now in terms of the vaccine contracts between governments, pharmaceutical companies, and the organizations that are part of vaccine production and delivery. Can you just speak a little more to why transparency is so important in this process? So, so greater transparency is absolutely essential for equitable access. Um, uh, countries and manufacturers need to be transparent about what has been committed to whom by when. Because once there's clarity on this, then there can be clarity on how much uh, supply is available for discussion, for negotiation, for redirection towards the parts of the world that really need it. Without this clear picture, it's very hard to be certain that we can move uh, supplies to developing countries and reach, a, reach the target of 40% um, uh, by the end of the calendar year. Um, you know, similarly, complete transparency around the supply chain, 
supply supply chains for vaccines are very complicated. Complete transparency around these supply chains will actually help identify where the critical bottleneck is, which is getting in the way of production and delivery of vaccines or drugs or therapeutics. And, and then bringing this to the attention of the relevant authorities can, can help with the bottleneck being uh, removed. So without this transparency, uh, I would say that it's actually very hard to get to this objective of equitable access. Uh, and as a part of sort of walking the talk, as the World Bank, we've decided to be completely transparent about what we're doing. We have created a portal that anybody can access uh, to, to see what our financing is going into. Um, and this is, uh, this is available by country. Mamta, thank you so much for being with us. Really, really appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk. <laughs>